and it is all about the church of the living God and how it started. A.D. means in the year of our Lord. And this series, which is produced by Mark Burnett and Roma Downey, is going to air um, all across this nation in prime time on Sunday night, beginning with the story of the crucifixion and continuing through the resurrection and the early days of the church. This 12-week series is a brand new venture, and as far as I know, it's the first time anything quite like this has ever happened in our country. And we're trying to do our very best to encourage people to watch this and to teach the material that goes with it. We'll be doing it on the radio on Monday through Friday, and then every Sunday morning on Turning Point Television, I will teach a message that coincides with what is going to be on television that night. I will give the doctrinal teaching and the practical message, and then you will see it lived out dramatically that night. I'm so excited to be involved in this and to be uh, able to share it with you. And that gives you some perspective as we study the book of Acts together. So without any other announcements right now, let's begin to understand how it all started. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. There is an old story about a church that sent its annual report into denominational headquarters with their statistical statement for the year. And the statement read like this, number of members added by baptism, zero. Number of members added by letter, zero. Number of members dismissed by letter, five. Number of members who have died, three. Amount raised for home missions, zero. Amount raised for foreign missions, zero. And at the bottom of the report were these words, pray for us, brethren, that we may continue faithful until the end. <laughs> Unfortunately, this type of report, with a few minor improvements, reflects the situation of many American churches, churches that have lost their vision, lost their sight of any goal, and no longer are making a difference in their community. If the early church in Jerusalem had filed a statistical report for the first year of their existence, it would have shown that literally tens of thousands of people had been added to the initial membership of 120. Within a few short years, the Church of Jesus Christ overflowed into the surrounding Jewish areas of Judea and into Samaria and Galilee, and in that church was the same vigor and health that had been experienced in the Church of Jerusalem. And the book that tells us the incredible story of the growth and explosion of the early church is called the Acts of the Apostles. In reality, the only two apostles who get much press in this book are Peter and Paul. But nonetheless, that's the title given to the book. Many have suggested that the book might have better been titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit or The Acts of the Risen Christ Through the Holy Spirit. John R. W. Stott suggests that it should be called the continuing words and works of Jesus by his spirit through the apostles, but that won't fit across the page, so we'll just call it the Acts. In verses 1 and 2, we are told that it is a continuing story. The book of Acts doesn't begin at the first chapter. It continues something that has already been written. The writer of the book of Acts is Luke, the physician, and he says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, 
of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now what is the former account to which he appeals? The former account was the book of Luke. This is the way that Luke, the companion of the Apostle Paul and the only Greek writer of the New Testament, began one of the most important books in all of the Bible. Luke's first book, which he refers to here as the former account, was the third gospel we know in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most scholars believe that Luke and Acts were meant to be viewed together as one writing in two separate volumes. One of the reasons for this is that ancient books were generally written on papyrus scrolls, and it was practical to have a scroll that was about 35 feet in length. When it got any longer, it was so bulky you couldn't carry it around. So if there was a long writing, they would often divide it into two sections. And many believe that Luke and Acts were originally intended to be one book, but they were divided into two sections because of the length of both of the books, both of the scrolls. Now, the former account talks about a familiar friend. And so letter B is that familiar friend. Luke says, the former account I made, O Theophilus. Now, we don't want to pass by these terms because they're very important. And the book of Luke begins with a dedication to a man named Theophilus. Say his name out loud, Theophilus. Now, here's what the book of Luke says as you begin the beginning of this two-volume set. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So immediately we know that both the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written primarily to a man by the name of Theophilus. Both the book of Luke and the book of Acts are addressed to this one man. And all that we know about this man is recorded in the first verses of Luke and the first verses of Acts. But in the introduction to the book of Luke, the apostle refers to Theophilus in these terms. He says, most excellent Theophilus. And if you trace that little phrase back into history, you discover these words that were used in addressing a Roman official. So Theophilus more than likely was a Roman official. Generally, he was one who was set over a country. Perhaps Theophilus was the governor of a province. Some writers believe that the term most excellent, because it is omitted from the book of Acts, it's only in the book of Luke. You don't see over in the book of Acts when he begins. He doesn't call him most excellent Theophilus there. Some people believe that between the writing of Acts and the writing of Luke, that Theophilus became a believer, a follower of Christ. And therefore now he writes to him rather than as most excellent Theophilus, he writes to him rather as a brother. So you have the former account and you have the familiar friend. And then in the first part of this chapter, we have the frame of reference. Notice Luke tells us what he's going to do in the book of Acts. He says he's going to tell us of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day he was taken up after that he through the Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. What was the scope of the history of Luke in the gospel? 
The scope of Luke's history was, watch this, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Isn't that what the book of Luke is about? When you open the book of Luke, what do you find? At the very beginning, you find the birth of Jesus. And then you have the life of Jesus all the way through to the end of the book where we are told about his ascension. So the book of Luke records everything that Jesus did and said while he was on this earth. And the words that Luke uses are very important. Notice he says, all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So the book of Luke, the history book in the Gospels, is a book that tells us what Jesus did and what he said. It's a book about the works and the words of the Savior. Now please note that Luke said this book is about all that Jesus began to do. Not about all that he did, about all that he began to do. Because when you get to the book of Acts, Jesus is still working only in the book of Acts. He's working through the apostles, not apart from them. And so the work of Jesus continues all the way through Luke and all the way through the book of Acts. There's a subtle shift when you get to the book of Acts because Jesus ascends to heaven and now the Holy Spirit is poured out and all the work of the book of Acts is done through the apostles and all of the Christians who were a part of the early church. That was what Luke's gospel was. It was the beginning of the work of Jesus. Winston Churchill, some years ago in the British House of Commons, after he had had a great North African victory, sought to kind of shut down the easy optimism that had grown up in Great Britain by saying, and here was a quote, this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end. This might be the end of the beginning. Well, you could say that at the end of the book of Luke. This is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. It might be the end of the beginning because Acts is going to pick up the story and carry it on into the early church and the explosive growth of that congregation. So the scope of Luke's history is what Jesus did and what he taught. And the span of Luke's history is he taught until the day he was taken up after the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles. So let me set this clearly so everybody understands because you need to see Luke and Acts together at the beginning to understand how this works. The first book records the life of Jesus from his birth until his ascension. And the record of the Lord Jesus' ascension is in Luke 24, 50 to 53. The span of some 33 years is covered in the book of Luke. It says here, it's all that happened until the day he was taken up. What is that? His ascension. What Jesus began to do in the days of his flesh while he was on this earth is now going to be continued in a larger ministry through the apostles. This helps us to understand one of the most perplexing verses in the Bible, in my estimation. For John 14, 12 says this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, will he do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. How in the world could it ever be said that anyone could do greater works than Jesus? Well, if you stop and think about it, all the works of Jesus were confined to the little area of Palestine. He never left Palestine. He was there for all of his life on this earth. He did what he did through his physical presence and the influence that he had upon his disciples. But when he went back to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit 
who now lives in every believer, and the work of Jesus was carried on by everyone around the world, and the work of Jesus actually grew greater in the book of Acts than it ever had been in the book of Luke. So Jesus is saying that he is going to do this until the time when he is taken up. And so the work of Christ continues. In his commentary on the book of Acts, John MacArthur writes, the work of Jesus Christ is both finished and unfinished. His work of providing redemption is finished and nothing can be added to it. His work of ministry and proclamation is not finished. That work he just started and the rest of the New Testament describes how that work will continue through the early church and we are still finishing the work of Jesus even today as we continue the ministry which Jesus began. So there is a continuing story. The book of Acts is not the beginning, it's just the continuation of Luke's gospel. And then in verse 3, we move from the continuing story to the convincing proofs. And notice what it says. To whom also, the apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now. Letter A is the infallible proofs. What are these infallible proofs? The Bible says that between the time when Jesus was resurrected and when he ascended back to heaven, how many days went by class? 40 days. What was Jesus doing during those 40 days? The Bible says he was continually showing himself to the disciples and the apostles, making himself manifest to them in his resurrected body helping them to see that he was indeed alive from the grave, victorious over death, and the one and only resurrected Lord. Jesus spent all those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension making sure that there would never be any question in the minds of the apostles as to whether or not he was the resurrected Lord. And the entire gospel message that follows after this depends on that. These men were going to go out and give their lives. All of them were martyred for what they believed. And if they did not know in their hearts that the one they served was truly the resurrected Son of God, they never would have done that. So the infallible proofs were so critical at the early stage of the church. Infallible proofs is a word that means the strongest kind of proof possible. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ confronts us at the very beginning of the book of Acts for the very simple reason that all of the acts that take place in the rest of the book would never have happened had these people not known in their hearts that the Lord God had come out of the grave in power over death and they served a risen Christ. According to most scholars, Jesus appeared 11 different times between his resurrection and his ascension. And you have all of those 11 appearances, beginning with the appearance to Mary Magdalene and the ending with the last appearance to the disciples on the Mount of Olives between Jerusalem and Bethany. But these weren't the only infallible proofs, were they? These were just some of the infallible proofs. In fact, there were lots of infallible proofs. I put just a few of them down. The guarded tomb that was empty, the words of the angels concerning where Jesus was, the release of the saints from their graves following Jesus' resurrection, the fulfillment of Pentecost and the promise of the Father, the appearance of Jesus to Saul and his conversion, the appearance of Jesus to Stephen at his death, and the appearance of Jesus to John at the Isle of Patmos. Those are all pretty 
convincing, infallible proofs that Jesus is alive. Now, let me just stop for a moment and say, this is rock-bottom theology. If Jesus Christ is not alive from the grave, what are we doing here? At the core of the Christian faith is not necessarily just the death of Christ, but it is the resurrection of Christ. Many leaders have died for what they believed, but Jesus Christ died and overcame death, and he is living today. And that was the power at the beginning of the early church that drove these men and women to incredible accomplishments through the power of the Holy Spirit. They had convincing proof that Jesus Christ was alive. And they went everywhere telling the story. And the Bible says they turned their world upside down. The convincing proofs. And then along with the infallible proofs, letter B, there was some instructive preaching. I won't comment on that much except to say that while the Lord was showing himself to the disciples, he was also teaching them, speaking about things pertaining to the kingdom of God, giving them information that they would need as they moved on into their leadership in the church. So we have the continuing story in verses 1 and 2 and the convincing proof in verse 3. And then in verses 4 and 5, we have a command to wait. And this is a very interesting thing. The Bible says that while this group of disciples and apostles was assembled together, that Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Now, if you hold your place in the book of Acts in the first chapter, and you want to have a little proof that Acts and Luke go together, just hold your place in Acts chapter 1 and go back to the last chapter of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24. And there you will see kind of a similar statement that Luke makes at the end of his gospel. In verse 48 he says, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Let me stop for just a moment. Whenever you see that little phrase, the promise of the Father, it's always talking about the Holy Spirit. That's a little catchphrase in the New Testament that means the promise of the Father was that the Holy Spirit was going to come. But here I want you to tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them, carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Now, the Holy Spirit has always been in the world. The Holy Spirit has been here from the beginning. The Holy Spirit is God. God is eternal. Not, that doesn't mean just eternal out into the future, but it means eternal back into history. There's never been a time when the Holy Spirit was not in existence. But the Holy Spirit had a certain kind of ministry in the Old Testament. And I want to give you a key little verse that will help you always to remember that ministry. If you will take your Bibles and turn to John 14, 17, you will see what I mean. Here Jesus is promising that the Spirit of God is coming. Now watch this. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now watch this. But you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Now just take that little phrase. He dwells with you and he will be in you. 
That little phrase tells you the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament operation of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was with those who were of God. But in the New Testament, he's not just with us, he is in us. And at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church and began his indwelling ministry within us. So you and I today don't have the Holy Spirit just with us. We have the Holy Spirit in us. Can I get a witness? The Holy Spirit is in us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit if we are believers. And Jesus said to these apostles who were going to be the foundation of the church, listen carefully, he says, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to stay there and I don't want you to leave until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you because if you go out to start the church without the indwelling Holy Spirit, you will fall on your faces and fail. And what a reminder that is to us men and women that when we try to do the work of the church without the Holy Spirit, we are doomed to failure. The disciples were commanded to stay in Jerusalem until they were filled with the Spirit. D.L. Moody once said, you might as well try to see without eyes, hear without ears, breathe without lungs, as to try to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. You might as well try to see without eyes, hear without ears, and breathe without lungs, as to try to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. I want to tell you something. There is no power in your human ability, no power in my human ability, no power in our education, no power in our polish. The power comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. And what a great lesson from the early church. Jesus told those apostles, you stay in that room until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you before you go out and try to do church. So maybe that's one of the first lessons we can take from the book of Acts, and that is, the acts of the Holy Spirit are what Jesus wants to continue in our generation today. Amen. And you know, this is such an incredible uh, study because everywhere you look today, there are all kinds of seminars being uh, invented to help us know how to do church. And I have to tell you, the best uh, information on how to do church is right before us in this study in the book of Acts. Someone has said there are three non-negotiables which are sometimes missing in the modern church, prayer, the Holy Spirit, and a gospel that includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the book of Acts as we study it today. Before we say our final goodbye today, uh, we're running out of time during the month of March, so one more shout out about the answers to questions about adversity, our 240-page gift book, which was created for the series that we have just finished. It's available uh, today and tomorrow only, and when you send your gift to Turning Point, ask for your copy of this brand new book, this beautiful new book that chronicles the answers to many of the problems that we face along the way. It's our way of saying thank you for your gift to Turning Point, and we thank you once again for your generosity. Also remember that you can order the material uh, for the series we have just concluded. Uh, the series Soaring Above Your Circumstances is available with resources in print, the study guide, and recorded resources in the CD program that takes you through every single lesson. Once again, you can use this material in small group study, in Sunday schools, wherever you meet together. Get a study guide for each of your members and one set of the CDs that you can listen to ahead of time and maybe even play some segments of it. And you're off and running on a study of the Word of God related to some of the challenges you face every day. 
We also want you to know that um, Turning Point is heading out to Alaska in July of this year, and I don't want to let that ever uh, become old and cold news. I want you to remember that because it's going to be one of the greatest events we've ever had. Uh, I do believe it will be the largest cruise uh, conference we've ever produced, and it's going to be wonderful. Again, July 18th through 25, information available from davidjeremiah.org. There's a brochure available that we'll send you if you request it. We'll see you right here tomorrow. For more information about Dr. Jeremiah's current series, The Church in Action, please visit our website, davidjeremiah.org radio. There we offer two free ways to stay connected to Turning Point, with a copy of our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and with our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.org radio. That's davidjeremiah.org radio. Or call us at 800-947-1993. When you do, ask for your copy of David's book, Answers to Questions About Adversity, a collection of questions and answers from the Bible covering topics like suffering, temptation, and loneliness, all to strengthen and encourage you when life gets difficult. Answers to Questions About Adversity is yours for a gift of any amount. So just call or visit our website to order today. This is Mark Larson. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, The Church in Action, on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Faith Talk 1500, WLQV, and streaming live at faithtalk1500.com. We hope you enjoyed David Jeremiah and Turning Point. Stay with us, friends. We're going to be joining Dan McGee next with Grace and Truth Radio. I'm Tom Kitterman. Just a quick reminder here from our Faith Talk 1500 station calendar. Our next Pastor Appreciation Lunch is coming up April 23rd at the San Marino Club in Troy with special guest speaker, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Now, friends, if you work in the ministry here in the metro area, we would love to have you be our guest for lunch for free. <laughs> it's easy to do, too. Just go to faithtalk1500.com, and on the homepage there in the rotating banner, you'll see Dr. Jeffress' picture. Click on that to take you to the sign-up page. You must be pre-registered. Stay with us. Coming up straight ahead, Dan McGee with Grace and Truth Radio, right here on Faith Talk 1500. The following is...